On the show Vikings on the History Channel, there is an old man called the Seer. He wears dark robes, his face is ritually scarred, his lips are tattooed black, and he foretells the future of those who come to his hut. Yes, I see an eagle. And the eagle is your destiny, Yalborg. Most eerily, as payment for his prophecy, he demands only that his client lick the palm of his hand. This, my friends, is total bull****. There is not a single grain of truth in this depiction, except that there were, in fact, seers in the Viking Age. Most of them were women, a few of them were men, but they did not have scarred faces that made you look like a lizard, or black lips that made you look like a Marilyn Manson reject. And they certainly didn't ask anyone to lick their palm. Gross. The seer of the show Vikings is creepy and great. Frankly, I love him. But it's pure fiction. And it's really too bad, too, because history actually has a figure that would have been even better. More interesting, more sympathetic, and more timely for today's gender landscape, the Sathemother. The Sathe Mother was a male witch. And when you think of witches as women, well, that's how the Norse thought of them, too. Another word for him was vitki, which may be distantly related to our English word witch via Old English witcha, possibly all the way back to Proto-Germanic wikias. Anyway, in the same way that our general idea of witches is gendered feminine, modern Wiccans notwithstanding, the medieval Scandinavian idea of witchcraft was feminine as well. And so a man taking up such workings was entering a woman's sphere. To be a witch as a male in the Viking Age was gender-bending. Folks, this is the second and final part of our Viking gender-bender series. Last time we talked about the females who took up arms as shield maidens or warrior women. And now it's time to talk about the males who took up sorcery as Saithmother, or witch men. Now, these men defied their culture's norms, and for it, they received ridicule and scorn. It was not entirely unlike the phenomenon today of bronies. You know, guys who are really into My Little Pony. Now, you think of the amount of ridicule and scoffing that bronies have to endure today just because their interest is gender-coded as feminine by their culture, and that gives you some idea of the attitude toward males practicing the woman's art of sorcery in the Viking Age. What was it like for these gender-defiant Norse spellslingers? Were they essentially the bronies of their day? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new patron, Philip Rice, for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Manscaped. So today we're talking about 
the Sathmather, or witch man. Now, Sather means sorcery, one of several forms of magic in the Norse world, and Mather means man. There was a Sathkona, that was the woman, or Sathmather, that was the man. Now, the Sathmather was a male who practiced sorcery, which, as we will see, was very much the exception. This was perceived as a woman's art. Okay, now before we get too far into this, I do want to make clear from the outset that the evidence upon which our discussion today rests is a little shaky. Shakier even than it was for the shield maiden or warrior woman, which was already pretty controversial among Norse scholars. There are even fewer references in Norse literature to the Saith Mother, and often the contexts are obscure or parathetical, don't provide nearly as much information as we'd like, and that is unfortunately just the nature of Old Norse studies. It's crazy, but we know more about the Sumerians 5,000 years ago than we know about the Vikings 1,000 years ago. Why? Because the Sumerians wrote things down on clay tablets, but the Vikings wrote almost nothing down themselves. Yes, they had rune stones, but the inscriptions are usually brief, formal, there's very few of them, and you weren't carving a novel into that rock. So we really just have to rely on poems and sagas written down centuries later, often by Christian authors hostile to traditional Norse ways. And then we also just have the opinions of scholars who spend their whole lives studying this stuff and still aren't really sure. So just keep all of that very much in mind throughout the whole episode today. With all that said, however, the tentative picture that we see emerging from literature and scholarly opinion about the male witch is just far too intriguing to pass up. And the more you explore, the more intriguing it gets. So today, first, we will look at the Saith Mother in surviving literature to get an image of this unusual figure in context, and then we'll raise some curious questions about Norse magic and gender, and we'll get into all of that in the second half of the episode. But first, let's start with some of the actual surviving depictions in the sagas. This first one dramatically illustrates the attitude that the Norse took toward male sorcerers. Now, this comes from the 13th century saga of King Harold Fairhair, and this passage is particularly noteworthy because the specific verses that I will be quoting appear to be much older than the saga itself, before the Christian conversion of Scandinavia. Archaeologist Neil Price actually places their composition around 900 CE, which is right smack dab in the middle of the Viking Age itself. So this is about as good as evidence gets. Now in this story, we are treated to the uncomfortable scene of a sorcerer being outed. As the saga goes, one of King Harold's sons, by the name of Roganvalder, had been given dominion over a far-off land, where he secretly learns magic and attracts a following of like-minded witch men. Now, meanwhile, back in the capital, King Harold hauls in a local witch man, this is pure coincidence, he hauls in a local witch man to demand that this man cease practicing magic, but the local man responds by revealing the activities of the king's own son, Roganvalder, off in that far distant land. Now, here are the local man's actual words, and remember, these are the verses that are quite possibly composed during the actual Viking Age. He says, 
Little wonder that we perform sather, sons of farmers and farmers' wives, for so does Rogan Valder, Raedel Baney, high praised son of Harold in Hatherland. So basically this guy's like, why are you hassling us farmers when even you nobles, your very own son in fact, do the very same thing? And in saying so, he inadvertently outs the king's son as a male sorcerer. Whoopsie doodle. Now, I think we can all easily pick up on the drama of that kind of outing, but from a historian's eye, what we really want to pay attention to here is that these very old verses give us some pretty good clues about the attitude toward male sorcery. So first of all, they clearly mark the word sons as practicing sather in a context which seems to demand a defense or justification of that practice. In other words, sather for males is clearly, well, let's just say off-color, to put it mildly. Now, how off-color was it? Well, let's continue the story, and you can judge for yourself. So as the saga continues, King Harold is so enraged by his son's sorceress activities that he sends his other son, whose name is Eric Bloodaxe. Can you think of a more masculine-sounding Viking bro name? Eric Bloodaxe. Okay, so he sends his other son, Eric Bloodaxe, to deal with the situation. And Eric proceeds to trap his brother in his hall and burn him alive together with 80 other witch men. And he receives much praise for the deed to boot. Yikes! That really shows it. Male sorcerers were despised, so much so that it could even set father against son and brother against brother. Now, it would be fair to ask at this point, could this just be like a, a Christian hit job of, of the writers later, making it look like the Norse hated male sorcery, but in fact that wasn't the case? Well, it doesn't seem so, right? So this is purporting to depict a time before the Christian conversion. King Harold was not a Christian, his reign took place before the conversion, and also remember these are those verses that appear to be dated to before the Christian conversion as well, 900 CE. So it kind of seems like this may have been an authentically Norse attitude toward male sorcery. So why did they hold it in such contempt? Well, that is admittedly a bit murky, but it may very well have to do with the gender dynamics at play in medieval Scandinavia. See, sorcery was by and large a woman's art, and so it marked you as effeminate. Here's another passage that illustrates this. Now this comes from a slam battle. Yes, a slam battle. <laughs> there are actually a lot of slam battles in Norse literature. They have a word that are called flightings, and they're basically insult contests. So here is a Norse slam battle. This comes from the Poetic Edda, specifically the first lay of Helgi Hundungsbani, and it was composed no earlier than the late 11th century, maybe later, and so this one is into the Christian period now, but it still has something, perhaps, that we can glean from it. In this passage, two men, one by the name of Sinfjotli, and the other's name is Gutmund, these two guys just rip into each other in this slam battle. So here is Sinfjotli's dig against his opponent, read with appropriate gusto. 
witch wast thou on Varen's isle? Didst fashion falsehoods and fawn on me, hag? To no white wouldst thou be wed but to me, to no sword-wielding swain but to Sinfjord. There you go. So he wastes no time in calling out his opponent Guthmund's witchcraft. He starts with, a witch was thou on Varen's isle. And then he specifically associates that witchcraft with feminine roles, calling him hag and claiming that he wanted to wed him. Then Sinfjotli goes on. Thou wast, witched hag, a Valkyrie fierce in Allfather's hall, hateful and grim. All Valhall's warriors had well-nigh battled willful women to win thy hand. On Saga Ness, full nine wolves we had together. I get them all. <laughs> so he keeps hitting this effeminacy button over and over again. He calls Guthmund witch hag, willful woman, and Valkyrie, which, as you probably know, was a female warrior spirit, the chooser of the slain in Norse mythology. And he tops all that off with an accusation that all of Valhalla's warriors, meaning the Einherjar, or glorious dead, who fight all day and drink all night, he shows them battling to win Guthman's hand in marriage. But ultimately, it is Sinfjotli himself who manages to bed Guthmund, fathering on him nine wolves. Now, Sinfjotli could not be more explicit here with the gender insults, and he specifically ties them to sorcery with the word witch in the first verse and then again in the second verse with witch hag. And the nine wolf cubs is also indicative of this, nine being a magical number in Norse culture. So it appears from this that practicing sorcery as a male was associated with effeminacy to such a point that it opened you to accusations of taking the passive role in sexuality. Now, you might be wondering, wait, 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 what about Sinfjotli? I mean, here he's claiming to have fathered these very same wolf cubs on Guthman, so isn't he equally implicating himself? Well, no, actually, that's not how they thought about same-sex relations in those days. See, unlike today, it wasn't the preferred sex of your partner that mattered, but the role that you took. We've heard this over and over again on this show, as in so many other pre-modern cultures that we've covered, Viking culture privileged the active role of the penetrator and denigrated the passive role of the penetrated. That was what mattered. If you screwed someone, it didn't matter if that person was female or male, so long as you were the one doing the screwing. But if you were the one getting screwed as a male, look out. That made you a laughingstock. Being a top was okay, but being a bottom as a male was a severe blow to masculinity. And here we see the witch man equated with a sexual bottom. That's quite a blow. Now, we shouldn't take the sexual part of this too literally. I mean, this is, after all, a slam battle. And there's a lot of exaggeration in slam battles today. Very much likely it was the same back then as well. But, clearly, there is some kind of association between male sorcery and effeminacy, or else the slam wouldn't be a slam. It just wouldn't make any semantic sense. It shows that those two things are connected, you know, sorcery and effeminacy. Now, this is reinforced in myth by another slam battle. I told you there were a lot of them. This comes from a poem called The Flighting of Loki. Now, in Norse myth, Loki, just like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is an antagonist. Maybe not evil per se, but certainly an antagonist. And in this poem, that is on full display. He comes to a feast of the Azur gods, 
starts dissing everybody in turn, and finally the chief of the gods, Odin, can hold his tongue no longer, and he gets up and then there's this exchange of slams, and he tears Loki a new one. Here's what he says. Thou winters ate with the earth beneath, milking the cows as a maid, and there gavest birth to a brood, where these womanish ways I ween. Okay, so Odin trots out the same tired you gave birth insult, just like in the last one that we heard. But then Loki comes back with a stinging retort of his own. He says to Odin, but thou say they on Sam's Isle once wove his spells like a witch in warlock's shape through the world did fair with these womanish ways, I ween. So Loki makes an even clearer association here between sorcery and effeminacy. After being called womanish by Odin, Loki basically says, Oh yeah, you're calling me womanish? You who practice sorcery? It's the pot calling the kettle black is essentially the gist of his insult. And notably, there's nothing else in this insult to suggest effeminacy other than the sorcery. So it's clearly the magical art itself that is being called womanish. But wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Time out. Something doesn't add up here. We're supposed to believe that this art is womanish when the head of the Norse pantheon, the chief of the gods, Odin, the Allfather, practices this very same art? What? This is supposed to be something that the culture scorns and reviles, and yet their highest god practices it? How could a whole people worship a god that practices something that, for them, is basically the medieval equivalent of uh, homophobia or transphobia? Uh, this doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it does actually make sense, but in order to make it make sense, we have to take a little quick detour into pre-Christian heathen or pagan religions. See, deities in pre-Christian European religions weren't necessarily good in the moral sense that we think of today. They were a whole lot more nuanced than that, and Odin especially so. He is not the shining hero like Thor, who actually enjoyed far wider worship in medieval Scandinavia. But Odin had the elites on his side, so he was the head of the pantheon, he had the poets on his side. But he was a much, much darker figure, more of an anti-hero, really. He's the all-father, but he's also kind of the godfather. He's the sort of character that you would see on a show like uh, Sons of Anarchy or something. He's the god of poetry, but he's also the god of death. And what's more, in myth he is called Oathbreaker. And let me tell you, Breaking an oath was one of the worst things you could do in Norse society. So he's already this anti-hero figure, and now we're seeing in more ways than one. He's Oathbreaker, and he's a master of sorcery. So really, this sorceress aspect of his divine nature is just another facet of his dark and complicated character. And in that sense, it actually kind of reinforces the conclusion that sorcery was looked down upon for males. It adds to the god Odin's dark and ambivalent nature. It was a dark art. And yeah, they did have basically homophobia or transphobia or something of that nature for it at the time. So taken together, these passages from saga and from myth make it pretty clear that being a sathe mother or witch man was scorned in Viking culture and associated with womanliness, just like being a brony today. 
it violated masculine gender norms and marked you out as effeminate. It was, in this sense, very much an act of gender bending. And that gender bending was apparently offensive enough to the normies that a father would rather see his own son burned alive at the hands of his other son than suffer one of these Sathmother in the family. Wow. So why in the world would practicing sorcery be so gender-coded that it could incite such outright scorn? What is the deal with this Sather? What's going on here? Well, we're going to explore that in just a moment. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Summer's here, boys. Woohoo! Are you ready to unveil your beach bod? Oh. Well, you're in luck because our friends at Manscaped, Manscaped, just launched their fourth generation performance package, which includes the Lawnmower 4.0 for trimming your hair, you know, down there. Whew. And you can get 20% off plus free shipping by going to manscaped.com with the code HISTORYOFSEX. Yeah! The performance package 4.0 also includes the Weed Whacker. Weed Whacker. To chop your worst weeds up top in your nose and ear. Because sometimes you need that. Manscaped. Honestly, they sent me one of these things, and I actually really like it. You couldn't hurt yourself if you tried, and it does the job way better than the stupid little scissors I used to use. <laughs> so if your face is sprouting like a chia pet, go for the Weed Whacker in the Performance Package 4.0. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code HISTORYOFSEX at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code HISTORYOFSEX, all one word, at manscaped.com. Manscaped.com. Escape the shrubs and weeds this summer and shine with Manscaped.com. Manscaped! And now, the history of sex presents this. Uh, don't you love the smell of monasteries burning in the morning? Yep, well, that is definitely one of my favorite smells. Uh, I, I was thinking that maybe we should review the raiding party's harassment policy. Yep, what? Well, it's just that some of the raiders feel that... Uh, oh, wait, is this about that Eric, uh, that witch? I, I, I mean, sorcerer. It's a politically correct term now, isn't it, sorcerer? Well, we all probably could use a refresher on workplace conduct. Yeah, well, I suppose you're right. I don't want anyone in my raiding party to be uncomfortable. If one of my crewmen feels... Uh, crew folk, sir. Uh, some of them are shield maidens. Ah, uh, right, right. Crew folk, crew folk. If any of my crew folk are feeling uncomfortable, I want to know about it. Let it be known from the shores of the Roost to the Isle of Iceland that I, Bjorn Steeliguts, am an equal opportunity employer. Very good, sir. I'll schedule a meeting. Uh, Mr. Steeligut, sir, I was hoping I could have a word with you. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, who, who are you again? I, I'm Halfdan, the Christian. Oh, no, no, no way. No, no, no chance. Faithor's hammer key. Get lost. No, not a chance. <laughs> All right, we're back. So we just discovered that sorcery for Norse males was looked down upon. Not just a little, but a lot enough that King Harold had his own son burned alive for it and at the hands of his other son, no less. And the association of sorcery with women was strong enough that it provided ammunition in many a Viking slam battle. <laughs> now, to get a better understanding of all this, let's now back up and see what was up with this thing called sorcery, what was it like for women, and then what was it like for men, and finally, 
how did this whole unmanliness thing actually stack up in medieval Scandinavian society? Alright, so the Viking world was full of magic, and it wasn't just sorcery. There were various types of magic, including fortune-telling, shape-shifting, and runic magic. The distinctions between these are a little bit murky to us today, but it probably would have been fairly obvious to people at the time. Anyway, amongst all of these kinds of magic, Sather, or sorcery, was somewhat darker and more elaborate. According to Snorri Sturluson in the Prose Edda, it was, quote, That art which brings the highest power, it was called Sather, and from it one could know people's destinies and things that had not yet happened. And Snorri goes on to describe the Sather of the god Odin. He could give death or accidents or bad health to people. He could take the wits and the energy from some and give it to others. But this sorcery led to so much unmanliness that men cannot practice it without shame, and this is why they taught this art to the priestesses. So, according to Snorri, men could not practice this art without shame. He doesn't really give us a good reason why. It's not clearly connected to what he had said previously about what you could do with it, the sort of spells on your spell list and giving death, accidents, bad health, or taking wits and energy from people and giving it to others. It's not really clear why, and it sort of like seems to be a just-so story, being like, well, yeah, Odin had it, but then it was causing a bunch of unmanliness maybe with these weaker mortals, so we had just taught it to the women. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel so satisfying to me. And also, keep in mind that Snorri was a Christian writing centuries later, so he probably didn't really understand it perfectly either. So, it's an open question. Like, why couldn't they practice this art without shame? Why was it seen as so unmanly? The best that I can tell is that it was just simply rooted so deeply in the actual gender norms of the Viking Age. It went against the norms of traditional Viking masculinity. These witch men were gender benders. And just like gender benders today, they incite a kind of phobia. So let's explore this down a little bit deeper. So to begin with, let's talk about what it was like for women who were the more traditional practitioners of Sather. So descriptions show them carrying a staff or a distaff. Now distaff is a, like a stick or a spindle used in spinning thread. Image-wise, it looks very much like the walking staff, not entirely unlike the staff of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. And remember, Tolkien was, of course, deeply influenced by Old Norse sagas. So you see kind of like a potential lineage there of that wizard's staff, perhaps descending from the female-coded distaff that you use in spinning thread. That's speculative, but interesting. And this association is supported by archaeology, by the way. Graves have been unearthed where the individual is buried with unusual ritual items, such as special sticks. Other items include intoxicants, such as henbane or cannabis seeds, or collections of small objects, such as owl pellets. Now, these may be the graves of sorcerers, and most of them are, in fact, graves of women. So... That reinforces, you know, the gender dynamic going on there. That reinforces the 
staff thing going on there and also adds in a bit of herbalism, a bit of like potion work, right? Meanwhile, leaving archaeology and moving to literature again, the saga of Eric the Red describes a sorcerer, in this case, a woman. She wears ritual dress, including a blue cloak, a black hood of lamb skin, and a bag of talismans. She is depicted practicing her art on a raised platform called a Seithyaler. So there's something here about being elevated to work this Sather sorcery, whether you're on a high mound or some special platform. The practice also involved singing, chanting, and dancing, and it may also have involved sitting outside for long periods, often in grim places like crossroads or at gallows under the bodies of the hanged. <laughs> now, how cool would it have been if the History Channel had chosen to make their seer chant under a hanged body? Man, what a missed opportunity, come on. Uh, anyway, that is what the art of Viking sorcery looked like for women. Now, precisely why this art was attached to women is a bit of speculation. I mean, you got Snorri's explanation, but it didn't really tell us that much, right? That was solid. But we can get at the question from a different angle by kind of looking at general gender norms. Generally speaking, in the sagas, men are shown exercising power by more direct means like sword, axe, or litigation. Litigation, literally like lawsuits. They they had them, <laughs> especially in Iceland, and there's a lot of them in the sagas. So men tend to take more direct means of aggression, whereas women are usually depicted working their will by more indirect means like manipulation, poison, and magic. So women take this more indirect route, and magic is classed among that. Hmm, okay. In addition, Women were also the cooks and the brewers of their society, so they may have kept lore that would be relevant to magic, like lore about herbs and the preparation of potions, and that fits with, you know, the henbane and other items that were found in the graves, right? These things also may have helped to mark sorcery as largely the sphere of women. Largely, but not exclusively. Occasionally, we find in the sagas that a woman would teach her son or take on a male apprentice. So there was the saith Kona, or witch woman, but there was also the saith mother, or witch man. Now, what did this practice look like for the saith mother, or witch man? That's a little bit more nebulous. It may have been similar to what we just described for women, or it may have been different. We've got a few scraps of evidence to go on. For example, Gunguhrolf's saga shows 12 male sorcerers mounting a sather platform to cast spells, which does resemble their female counterparts with the elevated platform, but that text is especially late and unreliable. Really fun, though. We, on my other show, Dead Ideas, we did a whole episode dramatizing it, and you should check it out. It's hilarious. But for today's episode, moving on, another piece of evidence that's interesting is from Adam of Bremen, writing in 1071, just after the official cutoff for the Viking Age. Adam of Bremen described Norse priests as dancing in a, quote, effeminate manner, whatever that meant for a medieval Christian chronicler like Adam of Bremen. And unfortunately, beyond that, we just, we don't have a lot of evidence to go on. So 
it raises a lot of questions. I mean, did they wear the same special ritual articles as their female counterparts? Did they carry the distaff, which associated with spinning as another feminine marker? Or did they go even further to actually dress in women's clothing? Now, I don't know any sagas or contemporary sources that describe them wearing women's dress, but there are some scholars who speculate that they did. And if so, this would fit with a general North European precedent, which goes all the way back to Roman days when Tacitus described Germanic priests wearing women's outfits. This would also fit with shamanic traditions across the globe, generally, which quite often feature dressing in the clothes of the gender opposite that assigned at birth in order to underscore their otherworldliness. The crossing the border between male and female is kind of analogous to the border between you know, life, death, and so many other these liminal kind of concepts. And it has been speculated by scholars that say there may have been a shamanic tradition. So we don't really know if they wore women's clothing or effeminate clothing, but we do know from the sagas that if you did, if you wore the opposite gender's clothing, that was a big deal for Viking men. Dressing in women's attire, even if it just bordered on effeminate, was strongly disdained in Norse society. For example, in one saga, a woman seeking revenge against her husband convinces him to wear a shirt that is low cut. <laughs> enough to show his nipples, perhaps? I don't know. It's not really clear, but definitely low cut enough that it's associated with women's clothing. And so she sews this shirt for him, convinces him to wear it, and that alone is sufficient grounds for her to divorce him, which was her plan all along. Here, try this on. Are you sure, honey? Doesn't it seem a little uh, low cut? No, it looks so hot. All right, well, uh, what do you think? I'm leaving you. <laughs> now, believe it or not, that is a real scene from Lakstala Saga, chapter 34, if you want to look it up. I mean, this reads like Real Housewives of Beverly Fjords. Anyway, the point is that gender norms in the Viking era were serious business for men to the point that just showing a little nip could totally derail your marriage. If indeed witch men did dress in women's clothing or even just slightly effeminately, it would have set them apart from other men and emphasized their otherworldliness in that characteristic shamanic way, but at the cost of endangering their masculinity, if not their marital status, as we've seen here. You know, and perhaps some were just fine with that. I mean, some of these Saith Mother may have been expressing a feminine inclination. By practicing sorcery, you were at minimum associating yourself with women's work, sort of like a dude at a sewing circle, and you may have put on female or effeminate clothing in order to express that side of yourself. Now, perhaps some of these men may have just been, you know, secure in their masculinity, as we say today, but for others, it may have been part of a personal identity expression, you know, expression of something deep down, like a feminine side, or perhaps even an identification as female. We don't know. It could have been something like what we would call transgender today. Now, as with warrior women, who we heard about last time, 
I do suspect that the majority of cases were probably not transgender in that sense. However, I do think it a little more likely in the case of the Saith Mother that some of these folks were in fact transgender, or genderqueer, or genderfluid, or something of that nature. And the reason why I say that is because there are just fewer motivations to do this if you weren't expressing something like that. I mean, it was far more damaging in Viking society to gender bend in the male to female direction than it was to gender bend in the female to male. Because in the female to male case, these warrior women were able to access the higher prestige sphere of male activity by dressing and behaving like males. But in the male to female case, which men were dabbling in the lower prestige sphere of women's activity by behaving like females. And that means there was just less motivation to do so unless you actually felt drawn to that gender. Either you really, really wanted your hands on some of that magic, or you were making a conscious choice to adopt the activities of a gender other than the one that was assigned at birth. And again, that's a personal inference that I am making here, but it makes sense to me because the hit to your status could be quite severe. Again, think of the scorn attached today to being a brony, and you've got some idea of that. The sheer association with unmanliness opens you up to ridicule, and sorcery did so at least as much in the Viking Age, if not more, compared to bronies today. And being called unmanly in the Viking Age was just about the worst thing someone could call you in those days. And so that's what we're going to explore next now. What it meant to be unmanly in Norse culture. The word is ergi, which is a noun meaning an unmanly person. The adjective form is arger, and you know I'm not going to switch back and forth, it'll just get kind of confusing. So I'm just going to keep going with Ergi, but this ergi arger could mean unmanly in several different ways, which we'll need to unpack here. So first of all, it could mean effeminate in the way that we have already seen. But it could also mean unmanly in the sense of being cowardly. And there's a possibility that that's all that is being marked here when sorcerers are being called unmanly, because sorcery may have been perceived as cowardly insofar as it dealt doom from a distance rather than face-to-face, -face, you know, in a so-called fair fight. Um, we saw how women are associated with, like, poison, magic, that kind of indirect means of aggression. Also, it fits with Norse attitudes about archers. The Norse were not very hot on archers for the very same reasons, that you weren't really, like, facing man-to-man, mano-a-mano. You were dealing death from a distance. And so perhaps sorcery was thought of as being unmanly because it was cowardly in this sense. That's a very real possibility. So being called ergi could mean unmanly in the sense of being effeminate or in the sense of being cowardly or both. Which is it in the case of sorcery? I don't know. You decide. We have to kind of make a judgment call. Now, incidentally, believe it or not, a woman could be called ergi too. But in that case, it meant something very different. For women, being called ergi meant an excessively lustful person, whereas for a man, it was about being cowardly or effeminate. So for both genders, it meant really bad, but 
bad in different ways, depending on the expectations for your gender. For men, the expectation was courage and masculinity, and so calling someone ergi accused them of not meeting those expectations. Now, being called ergi, as I said, was one of the worst insults that could be slung at you in the Viking Age. Dems was fighting words. A man was pretty much obligated to challenge his accuser to a duel if he was accused of being unmanly. Otherwise, everyone would just assume that, in fact, he was a coward, unmanly, ergi. You know, too cowardly to face up to a duel. It's very much like an Old West, like, calling you out kind of situation, and then you got the face-off in the town street. Except in this case, it wasn't pistol duels, it was like axes. <laughs> and this can actually be seen in the laws of the time itself. In the Grey Goose Laws of Iceland, for example, it was expressly stated in the law that, yes, it was totally legal to duel over words like this because they were that offensive. Furthermore, the gravity of this insult was emphasized by the legal stipulation that if you won the duel, your accuser would be outlawed. And outlawry in Norse culture meant you were stripped of all rights. Anyone could kill you without fear of retribution. So being outlawed was serious. You did not want to be outlawed. Meaning, calling someone ergi was serious business. You could be outlawed for it. It was not a word that you slung around lightly. This was not playground smack talk. This was serious. Male sorcerers were ergi in the eyes of their fellows, but these witch men took up the art nonetheless. Clearly, it was a matter of great importance to them, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. Perhaps for some, it was the temptation of that magical power, and perhaps for others, it expressed something deep down about their identity, some kind of actual gender expression of who they were on the inside. To sum up, the Sathe Mother was a gender bender who engaged in the woman's art of sorcery, may have dressed in women's clothing or effeminate dress. It's possible. All right, so that, my friends, is the Sathe Mother. That's the skinny on the Viking witch man, this gender bender. What I can say by way of conclusion is, man, what an interesting and complicated figure who would have made a great addition to a show like Vikings on the History Channel. Ah, instead, they chose to make the seer look like a Marilyn Manson reject with no hint of gender ambiguity, no ill repute, who makes his clients lick his palm as payment for his prophecies. You know, that's 100% pure fiction. And the palm licking, by the way, was actually invented by the actors themselves on set because they wanted something more unnerving. And someone literally just suggested, hey, what if he makes us lick his palm? <laughs> Not kidding. That's how it went down. It's made up. It is unnerving. It is good fiction. But fiction is what it is. And that is too bad because they could have had a really interesting, sympathetic character struggling to be true to himself in a society that needs him but scorns him. They could have had a badass mystery man with a staff prophesying atop mounds and meditating beneath hanged bodies to acquire power. They could have had a possibly transgender or genderqueer character risking social censure to courageously pursue his authentic calling. They could have had a save mother. I would have loved to see that. <sighs> oh, History Channel. Maybe next time.
Thanks for listening, folks. I hope you learned something today. I know I did. If you like what we're doing on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a black-hooded, distaff-wielding worker of the dark arts, or maybe a Viking wearing a shirt that's just a little bit too low-cut for your gender, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome. I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.